Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today we are discussing Season 2, Episode 5, All the World is Birthday Cake, written by Seth MacFarlane and directed by Robert Duncan McNeil. Who directed Command Performance as well. That was uh, Lieutenant Tom Paris from Voyager. Mm-hmm. He's back. We have a new review this week. It starts off by saying mission log for the Orville. Oh, I'm already so excited for this. <laughs> Are you familiar with Mission Log, the podcast? Mm-mm. There's a, I listen to it. There's a podcast for Star Trek. Uh-huh. That's the official Roddenberry Star Trek podcast called Mission Log. And it's fantastic. I'm glad that someone mentioned that because I modeled the structure of this show a little bit off of that mm-hmm. because I love it so much. Well, I'm excited because it just says mission log and makes me feel like I'm on a spaceship. So I'm down. (laughs) It goes on to say great podcast for a great show. The hosts dissect each episode and give their commentary in an entertaining and exciting way. I can tell they're invested in the series. Their love hate relationship with Dan brings an extra element of comedy into an otherwise awesome dive into one of my favorite programs. The only downside is being up to date and having to wait for the next episode. Team Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Not a Dan fan. (laughs) Not a Dan fan. That is an amazing review. Thank you so much. I'm just glad people enjoy us chatting about the show because I I really sincerely love this show. And I just like I've told Rob before, it's like I get to fan girl out with Rob every time we record an episode. So it makes me happy when people enjoy that. Same. If you would like to have your review read on an upcoming episode, all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave a five-star rating, and write a review, and we might read it on an upcoming episode. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. You can follow us on Twitter at quantumdrivepod, and you can join our Discord to discuss the podcast and the show itself at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. Before we talk about the episode, Katie has trivia. I do. In this episode, they're guards and soldiers, and they're carrying guns or weapons that are called FNP90s. So this is interesting because the FN stands for Fabrique Nationale, and they were designed and built in Belgium. Okay. But what's interesting about these guns is that they're very futuristic looking, but they were made in first in production 1991, and they're the same type of weapons that were used on the TV show Stargate SG-1. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't pay that much attention to the weapons, but I'm like, I like that. Like, I don't know that a gun from 91 still holds that futuristic feel to it. And that it was used in a Stargate show. Mm-hmm. I actually, during this episode, made a big note to myself to say, look up locations where this was filmed. Mm-hmm. Because I'm always intrigued. Like, this is a futuristic society in Rigor too. Where was it filmed? The California State University at Northridge Campus was also used in Star Trek and Star Trek Voyager episode random thoughts but it stands that's that's the planet rigor too okay the government building for re, the rigorian government building is actually the oviat library at california state university northridge so if you want to go visit you can actually go to this library at california state university and be like this is the rigorian government building oh wow that's super cool and what's also interesting about this library building it was used as starfleet's headquarters in star trek oh and like the original series probably yeah mm-hmm so that, wow. I don't know, I kind of want to just go to California State University and just wander the campus and be like, hey, is the library anywhere around here? <laughs> a lot of sci-fi history there. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
during the banquet scene, Captain Mercer says, we all do better when we all do better. And I really liked that quote, but I didn't I didn't know it was a phrase famously used by a Minnesotan senator named Paul Wellstone. Mm. So I don't know if that was like a coincidence or if it was borrowed from him, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was borrowed. Yeah, it's a great slogan in general. Like Mm -hmm. that's that's a commercial tagline that you would totally be able to sell to people. But it's also just a great phrase in general. Yeah. This is just a fun fact about the name Rigor is just Roger spelt backwards. That never occurred to me. (laughs) Me neither, but I like it. In the closing scene, when everybody's having the the joint birthday party on the bridge, you can see a few of the crewmen teaching Isaac how to dance. Oh, really? And it's teaching him the robot dance. So if you ever rewatch it again, just keep your eyes peeled for that. Oh, man. Now I have to rewatch it. I know. I want to go back and watch that scene just to look for the robot dance. That's funny. This specific episode aired the week of the Holocaust Memorial Day week, Mm. which was around, I believe it's January 27th. And I noticed when I was watching it, there are strong ties to concentration camp situations. So that was just interesting that those two lined up. Very much so. Yeah, there's a lot. I'm sure they'll come up in discussion. But yeah, there's some Mm -hmm. big visuals that tie directly and themes that tie directly into it. The actress who plays Kelly, Adrienne Pilecki, she said this is one of her favorite episodes of season two because there's a lot of fight scenes. And she was quoted saying, Kelly gets to do a lot of action. And you know how much I love action. She has a huge action background. Yeah. So that was really cool. There was a lot of action in this episode, too. There was. Yeah, it was very cool. It was one of the first episodes where we saw a true like firefight, Mm -hmm. at least between people. During that banquet scene as well, there's that candelabra that Tala bends. Mm -hmm. I noticed when she picked it up, it's a little wobbly. Mm. But if you look really closely, it's already heavily creased beforehand. So either they had done the scene a few times or... They like prepped it for easy bending. Sure. I wouldn't be surprised if it was prepped for easy bending, but Mm -hmm. and I didn't notice it as a crease when I was watching. I just thought it was a design element. So it doesn't like take me out of it or anything. No, me neither. You have to really like look for it and be like, oh, that's a crease. This was interesting. The month of Jiliac roughly corresponds with the month of November. Mm -hmm. So then Wasanda would be the month of December. So we are recording this Mm -hmm. within the month of the Jiliac. We are recording this episode in the month of the Chiliac. Oh, no. So we have a few guest stars this episode that are worth mentioning. There is an actor named Robert Curtis Brown, and he played Advisor McCall in this episode. And he has actually starred in Deep Space Nine as well as Voyager. So some more Star Trek alum. Yeah. Vedic Sarad in DS9, the episode Sanctuary. And then Mm -hmm. he was a Ladosian ambassador in the Voyager episode Natural Law. Yeah. And then another alum to Star Trek is John Rubenstein, who played the first prefect. And he played also in Voyager as well as Enterprise. I feel like he's someone I've seen in a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. just in general. He's one of those, hey, it's that guy's type. Yeah. Yeah. He's got that look where I'm like, I've seen him in things before. Absolutely. And I don't know if you noticed, but Ted Danson's in this episode. Oh, is he? (laughs) Yeah. Of Cheers fame. And he's also in The Good Place. And he plays Admiral Perry. Yep. Nice to see another very prominent actor coming in as one of the admirals. It's almost like a distinguished thing Mm -hmm. that you bring in somebody of a certain level to play an admiral. Yeah, I like that. For some reason, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's Ted Danson. Like, he just fit 
the role so well mm-hmm. that I didn't even notice at first that I was like, oh, he's a guest star yeah. this episode. Yeah. Like, it's just Ted Danson. He's always been here. <laughs> <laughs> he's never gone away. He's never gone away. Uh, and the most prominent thing is there's a new character now, Tala, um, played by Jessica Zor. And she is replacing Lieutenant Alara Catan. She was transferred from a science class vessel aboard the Orville now. And uh, I most notably know her from Gossip Girl. I think that is her biggest credit. Yeah, to this point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She played Vanessa on that show. And yes, I've watched all of Gossip Girl and I loved it. <laughs> and so I, I'm really excited to get to know Tala more. And that's all of the guest stars and fun facts for this episode. Okay. In the office of the first prefect, advisors are gathered to discuss whether to use their newly functioning satellite array or wait. He decides they should, and they send the message into space. So we start off the episode with the uh, alien culture, with the Rigorians. Mm-hmm. What did you think of their alien features, their kind of distinguishing marks? It looked almost like fish scales, mm-hmm. silver fish scales on their face. It's very similar to Earth. It's very relatable. So I feel like you and I, and I didn't necessarily think anything sinister right off the bat. Oh, no, not with at them. all. They just seemed very much like we want to see if there's life out there. Yeah. But there was always like a hint of like, I guess I would arrogance be the right word. I can see that. Yeah. It's a very intriguing species. Um, what did you think of the alien makeup, though? I think it's fine. I the, we- mm-hmm. the weirdest thing to me is that it does look almost a little bit like those areas are like rubbed off skin. Because they're silver and it's kind of robotic in a way. Yeah. But I do like when they just take like a human type form and add just these slight differences to make us just a little bit different, but like also completely relatable. Yeah. I feel like they do that when they want us to put a lot of our like to relate to them a little bit more and put a lot of ourselves into those characters mm-hmm. in a weird way. Growing up, there's a book called The Rainbow Fish. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read it. Sounds familiar. The book itself has this beautiful fish, and there's some of the scales are silver. So the entire time, I was like, it reminds me of rainbow fish, like, <laughs> but in human form. <laughs> That's funny. The Orville's new chief of security, Lieutenant Tala Kiali, is meeting with Mercer and Grayson in Ed's office. He asks her about an incident in which she punched her previous captain, and she clarifies, stating that it was necessary for appearances due to their interactions with the Genesi, a species that dismisses all males in a dominant role. She admits that she's aware of her rough-around-the-edges reputation, but reassures them that she's up to the task. Okay, I want to know more about the Genesi at some point, please. Um, (laughs) But also, how much more confident, just in general... Seeing this new character as a security officer just be like, I will take care of stuff. Yeah. Like it was just such a stark difference to Alara. Yeah. She already has a very confident and capable presence that Alara never really had because Alara mm-hmm. felt much more like she was growing into the role. Yeah. I wonder, I don't know if they've said what Tala's age is. I was just thinking that. But I feel like she is a little older, at least yeah. character wise. She gives off the vibes that she's not a very new to the union new to security officer role. Like I think was that Alara's first security officer role? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely not Tala's. And now I feel like it shows that Mm -hmm. just by how she conducts herself and speaks. Yeah, absolutely. When I first saw this too, I was, I don't know if you get like this too. I'm sure you do just get a little like naturally resistant to change. Yes. And I was like, 
Oh, man. And it was even, I think, more difficult that they got another Zelayan. Yeah. Because that just made me think of Alara. Mm-hmm. But having watched everything at this point, I'm very happy to see Tala here because I like her quite a bit. Yeah, I do, too. I was very much like, uh-uh, I don't like change. I don't like this different new thing. And so it, I, I do that with most shows, mm-hmm. though, where it's it takes me some time to like, all right, how do I feel about this? However, think about it in these terms, Rob. What if Tharl was just, you know, the new security officer? Don't like. <laughs> don't like it. So I think when you put that into the resistant to change formula. Yeah. I think it's why they gave us Tharl. I think it was yeah. that palate cleanser to be like, okay, here's the absolute worst. And mm-hmm. uh, now we're going to give you the one that we're keeping around. And boom, there you go. Acceptance. I still love Thrall, though, and I really hope he comes back. And now my husband has has taken to saying he'll get hungry and then he'll just tell me, got to take the tube to Tommy Town. Of course he does. So I would expect nothing else. mm -hmm, That's now a new thing in my home. (laughs) On the bridge, because their birthdays are close to one another, Kelly asks Bordas if he'd be interested in a joint birthday party. Preferring to keep his birthday focused on himself, Bordis refuses. I just enjoyed this free, this whole interaction because Bordis was so resistant to a joint birthday party. Mm-hmm. And it, it like tied through the rest of the episode for the most part. But just like Kelly was like, why don't you want to do this with me? One thing I know. So she's like going to talk to Bordis and she's leaning against the control panel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, her butt definitely is pushing some buttons right now. Although... I would headcanon it by saying that the way those work are probably similar to like our modern touchscreens and that they're capacitive and require Mm -hmm. some sort of charge from us. And the cloth of her uniform would prevent that from accidentally triggering anything. My headcanon likes to add that layer of danger where it's like she could hit quantum drive at any moment. And (laughs) who who knows where they are? Because that could be an episode, too. You know, right. It's going to throw that out that little seed out there and they kind of did into the fold was an accident with a console that crashed them mm-hmm. on a planet and then we're gonna have that happen all over again but the entire orville <laughs> the entire orville this time <laughs> tala then detects a transmission from the gamma valorum system and isaac confirms several plants in the area she then reads the message to the crew which simply says is anyone out there after verifying that there hasn't been any previous contact with that system the crew excitedly starts preparing for first contact. Which is very exciting. And you can tell like everybody, the electricity of, oh, this is what we've been all waiting for. I love how excited they get for this. Yeah. And it's a very innocuous message. Like, is anybody out there? I feel like they answered some of the questions I had, but that they answered the call and just the whole process, seeing what first contact protocol is, is very interesting mm-hmm. and i don't want to get ahead of myself so i'm stopping myself okay. there <laughs> <laughs> i do imagine though like their excitement does clearly show this has to be their best part of the job mm-hmm. this is what you look for this is exploration this is answering someone else's big questions and that's super cool yeah a team of ed kelly tala bordis and dr finn land on the planet's surface and introduce themselves to the first prefect and the rest of the Rigorian welcoming party more standing in the shuttle, by the way, on the way there. The, mm. uh... I thought of you when that whole scene was going down because Bordis is like, 
we agreed there's no joint birthday party, correct? Yep. And I was like, they're standing right behind them, and Rob's going to tell me about it. That's my when thing. We record this I episode. can't get over yeah. it. That's my thing. There's just more excitement at the front of the shuttle, you know? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> when they're flying in, though, it's very New York City or Chicago-esque. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very, as a very pretty planet, and it's very Earth-like. Mm. And like when they landed, there's palm trees. And that's one of the things I'm like, it's just interesting to think this is an alien world. Mm-hmm. But there's still some similarities. Yeah. Which is very much so the Rigorians themselves, like we were talking about their features. Mm-hmm. They're very much human looking with just slight mm-hmm. differences. Yeah. And their planet reflects that as well. It's interesting to think that there are alien, even in our reality, mm-hmm. that there might be a planet out there with a very similar reality, but just they have silver scales on their face and they also imprison people based on the month that they're born in. <laughs> so. <laughs> I, uh, I enjoyed the bit of them coming up with the idea of using different names and then quickly abandoning it at the last second. Mark loved that. My husband was like, oh, I love this joke, especially just the build up to it. I'm like, oh, my God, are they going to really do that? Because in my head, I'm like, if these aliens ever find out mm-hmm. that you lied to them about their names, they're going to be insulted. They're going to be insulted and feel like they've been tricked and they can't trust other alien races and stuff. But when Ed says, oh, God, it was something like, I don't know. I think they'd, they I think they'd know. And then just immediately goes, hi, I'm Ed. And this is, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It was it was very well done. And that was my ramble on it. <laughs> You're welcome. An- another weird side note. I always find it odd that in Star Trek does this, too. And of course, Orville does as well, as we see in this episode, that the planets are referred to with some sort of a number by its own inhabitants. Mm-hmm. So like, why wouldn't the Rigorians just call their planet Rigor instead of Rigor 2? Like, where's Rigor 1? That's an excellent question, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, I don't... there are there are several planets in the system. This is the inhabited yeah. one. We know this. They know this even on mm-hmm. Rigor because they'd be able to detect those other planets. And the Orville doesn't detect any other like signals, or at least they don't make note of it. But we see this all the time in both Star Trek and in Orville as well. It's time to headcanon. Maybe they believe in like astronomy and all this stuff for their religion. Perhaps they view that their existence now is a part of the second phase of Rigor. And so Rigor 1 has passed and now they're in the stage of Rigor 2. Maybe. My headcanon is always they're the second planet from their sun. Mm -hmm. So they just define it as a number. But I can see the Union doing that. I can see the Federation doing that to number the planets within a system. It's always felt odd to me that the inhabitants of the planet are aware of that numbering structure. (laughs) And somehow that's their name. It could just be that they like the way it sounds. It just rolled off the tongue a specific way. They're like, Rigor, Rigor 2. It sounds a little bit more, you know. They were like, Rigor sounds too much like Roger. We should add a 2 at the end. Add a 2 to it. Nobody can question (laughs) that it's not a planet then. Exactly. The crew educates the first prefect on union policy with making first contact. And apparently this policy is different than the Federation's. I don't think the Federation responds to transmissions. They always waited until a planet achieves warp drive to make first contact. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting. That's the thing I was holding my, myself back from saying was that they want to make sure they make first contact before another species, say the krill mm-hmm. or a more hostile contact reaches them first. And I was like, that's an interesting way to look at it because, yes, the planetary union is the best 
option, probably. In their opinion. And yeah, because that is true. Because if the krill show up, the krill might say, this is our divine lands. Mm -hmm. uh, you're all dead. So that I did like because it answered some of the questions I had, like the morality of making first contact with a new civilization. So I'm okay with their protocol for this. Yeah, I feel like maybe the Federation's policy would change now that the Borg is like a thing mm -hmm. and planets could be assimilated. They want to get there first. Maybe that's the idea here, too. We don't know what the Union's policy was pre-Krill. Yeah. Because we've always seen the Krill from the first episode. They've always been a part of the show. So was that a policy that got implemented as a result of someone like the Krill being out there? Yeah, and I'm sure there's other alien races or beings that are also just as bad mm -hmm. that they probably want to avoid sneaking in there oh, yeah. and killing an entire planet. Mercer, Grayson, and Bordis get a tour of the satellite array control room, while Dr. Finn and Tala are shown around a medical facility. Dr. Finn notices that there are an unusual amount of premature births. They're then taken to witness an emergency C-section, but Claire can't detect any reason for it. She asks a doctor why the procedure was conducted, and he tells them it was to prevent the child from being born Jiliac, a condition which makes them prone to violence and destructive behavior. When we got a tour of the satellite room, I thought the computer schematics looked really good. Mm. I noticed that stuff just because I'm kind of a geek for user interfaces. So anytime I play a video game that has a really good user interface, I, especially a sci-fi one, I get really excited. And I thought it... They're like a step above us, I think, in our world by way of computer systems and things. Yeah. So it was just neat to see that. And then, yeah, the whole hospital tour was very interesting. Um, the Did you see the language on the wall? Yes. And so in my head, I was like, oh, are they using translators again? But if they are, they if this is first contact, they wouldn't know this language, right? Yes and no. I feel like universal translators have i think what they do is they take a like almost cross-section of the languages that they are aware of mm -hmm. and they do their best to interpret it might not always be perfect mm -hmm. but i think there are so many similarities between languages and the sounds that people are even capable of making like these yeah uh the Rigorians are very human-like so there is a range that they are limited to of the sounds that they can even make and I feel like within those sounds, the universal translator would do a nice job of kind of discerning what that is in this moment of headcanon. <laughs> yes. No, and I, I, I can get behind that. I just noticed, I was like, oh, there's a different language on mm -hmm. the walls in this hospital. And it was a very interesting, I'm also a font nerd, but I really liked the spacing, the way that it was done. It, it looked like an alien language, but not so far-fetched that it was like, oh, someone just drew a shape there and... <laughs> It was nicely done, yeah. I guess is yeah. what I'm saying. Also, the whole baby's getting in the month and yeah, all. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. This is, of course, our first hint that something is off with this planet as a whole. Mm hmm. Well, Dr. Finn's scanning, trying to figure out what's wrong with this woman getting an emergency C-section. Mm -hmm. She's like, I can't find anything. You can tell that Claire's getting like red flags. And the episode's like, here's the mystery. Mm hmm. <laughs> Which I love the build up to it because you're like, is there something wrong? Because it wouldn't be a very interesting episode if it was first contact and everything went swimmingly. Yeah, it's just an episode of like brunch and... Not that I'm opposed to that. <laughs> yeah, I would watch it still anyway. Yeah. <laughs> At a state dinner, the prefect and Mercer both give speeches celebrating their new friendship. 
They discuss economics, and Tala demonstrates her Zelayan strength. Kelly makes a comment that this is the perfect birthday gift, with hers and Bordis's birthdays coming up next week. Upon hearing this, the prefect orders her and Bordis seized and transported to processing. Ed asks what they've done wrong, but he, Tala, and Claire are taken into a separate holding area. Once in their cell, a Rigorian extracts a piece of each of their teeth. Two things. The first prefect played that really well. Mm-hmm. Like, that whole scene was really tense when he's like, what? And then just getting super angry and how dare you bring Jilliax here kind of thing. And then in the cell, Tala grabs the Rigorian doing the tooth extraction, puts him on the wall. And literally the first prefect just said, shoot her if she tries anything. Right. So was that just like dumb luck that the guards didn't like shoot her or? They may not have been the same guards. Mm -hmm, That is true. But I just thought in that situation... They probably would have just shot her. Probably. Although, even though they're they're very distrustful and they don't like Jiliax, there's been no proof that these three are. Yeah. And I feel like they're holding back a little bit with the three of them. Plus, they might also be considering the weight of what shooting one of the non-Jiliax would mean for them. Yeah. When there's this union that they don't know that much about who could just come in and, and like wipe them all out. That is also very true. I thought... The fact that they're using an extraction of the tooth to see which month someone was born in was very interesting. Yeah. I still think during the conversation at the banquet hall, too, the personal achievement over money is a very intriguing topic that I would love for them to explore more at some point, because this is where the quote, we all do better when we all do better. And it's very and like that was just a very profound scene to me where I'm like, just think about our society if we weren't all worried about our jobs and Mm -hmm. like all the things we could accomplish and create if it was a different kind of society. And maybe someday, because I feel like Star Trek and perhaps the Orville now are going to somewhat predict (laughs) the future. I hope. I hope so too. Because these, at least in Star Trek and in this reality, there is hope and there's good people and there's good things. And so I am so curious if we just embrace that ideal of we all do better when we all do better. If only. Sorry, went a little philosophical there. It's okay. (laughs) The three are then brought before the prefect. Now that they've been confirmed to not be Jiliacs, Claire realizes that Jiliac is an astrological sign, which explains all the premature births. They're told that Kelly and Bordis have been taken away to camps, just as all Jiliacs have. The prefect then asks the three of them to return to their ship, as they're now unwelcome on Rigor 2. I don't know how you would even avoid a situation like this, or have protocol in place to handle a situation like this. It's just, yeah, oops. It's wacky. Yeah, it's because you're learning so much about this new environment, these people, and you can't control that. Oh, I was born in November, and that's not okay with you all. Mm. But, man, I just don't know why they didn't just release them back to the Orville so they could leave, but instead are just like, we're keeping them. That is a big part of my takeaway at the end of this episode that I'll definitely get into, yeah. The other interesting thing, too, is this was a question we had brought up a little bit in Majority Rule. I'm wondering why a part of their first contact protocol is not to examine a place a little bit longer than just going right down. That would also make some sense to observe from a distance for a while. Maybe, you know, it's kind of invasive, but it's a safety protocol, Mm. apparently. Otherwise, you might end up in a Gilead concentration camp. Yeah, just for their own sake. I imagine there Mm -hmm. might have been a similar thing done with the 
society we saw in majority rule. They might have done some sort of similar like, hey, is anybody out there type thing? Or maybe they had achieved space flight or something like that. And they send people down to study before making first contact. So I'm not sure. We also know how majority rule ended up, though, too, with those two scientists. Yeah. But I could see that being a better way to do that because it's not putting stress on ties to another galaxy and universe and everything. So it it does make sense to do something like that. But maybe they'll learn something from this mission maybe. and make a few changes. Kelly and Bordis, now in red jumpsuits, are taken to the Juliet camp by armed guards. The warden informs them that this is their new home, so they should get used to it. Even though neither of them is yet aware of what a Juliac actually is, they put up a fight, but it doesn't last long. Oh, the camp is awful. It is very awful. And like we had said, there's some big shades of like Nazi prison camps with mm-hmm. the Jewish prisoners wearing star badges. They have like that. Yeah, I guess what I'm assuming is the Juliac star. Mm-hmm. Or the the star that we find out has gone missing is maybe their sign. They definitely, there are nods to it. The star, obviously, just the way the camp looks, mm-hmm. too, and the way the guards treat the Jilliac. That man is so awful. He is. The warden is terrible. Yeah, he is a bad man. And so th- that's the first thing I thought of. So I I think this episode does have some parallels between, you know, like you said, Nazi concentration camps mm-hmm. and... The fact that they just throw these people in there based on the month that they're born. Yeah. I mean, that alone is like throwing someone in a camp based on their religion. It's just, it's awful. It's also interesting that they throw them in such bad conditions. It's one thing to say these people are more prone to violence and destruction. But hey, you know what? Why not give them the best possible life they can have, even if they're secluded? Like, why not let them have a nicer society instead of just these camps where they're treated like garbage. And I think it might be because they're like, oh, they're just later in the episode when the warden says, say it, say you're Jilliac trash. It's just like this view that these people are bad through and through and don't deserve yeah. like any basic human respect based on just being born in November. And yet somehow they can produce people that are totally fine, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though they're trash. In was the, the month of Wasanda is like a royal almost seemed like a royalty high privilege month. The next month, yeah, feels like the best month. I know. Please, I wish I was. I'm okay. I'm born. I was born in February. I want to know where I fall <laughs> in this scale in this society. So it, it's just it's very Bordis and Kelly being the two to go to the camp probably was the best out of the whole crew. As awful as that is to say, but they're both very strong characters and they can handle. It, it. was a whole dang month that they were there. Yeah crazy back aboard the orville sans kelly and bordas the senior staff is discussing the matter with admiral perry who insists they need to find a diplomatic solution to the problem isaac makes note of the vast array of satellites the Rigorians have in orbit solely to observe the position and movement of stars in the camp kelly and bordas discuss their situation with kelly saying that there's no way that they'll be extracted during a first contact mission During their discussion, they make the assumption that their imprisonment is tied to the mentioning of their birthdays. They're interrupted when a man attempts to steal rations from a pregnant woman and her husband nearby. He backs down when Bordis stands up to him. Couple things. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that there's a pregnant woman also. It just kind of shows clearly she doesn't have any medical care. She doesn't have any doctor visits or uh, ability to have a birth with a doctor. Mm -hmm. They like throw these people in the camp, essentially give them slop 
and just that's how they exist. Seems like it. And they were saving the rations so that they would be food for when the baby was born. And all of it is just very sad. It just it's like an umbrella of desperation and no hope. Like it's the most hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at least Kelly and Bordis, they were the only two that really did anything. Yeah, It is interesting, too, that she wouldn't be monitored in some way. Because they would have seen that she's pregnant at some point because they do their inspections and everything. Yeah. And if the child is not born Jiliac, they would have to remove it from the camp. So you would think they would monitor it at some level and be like, okay, if we have your like expected due date, it's going to be during this month. So I guess we should probably take care of you. The other thing is it's co-ed. Mm-hmm. There's no separation of genders. Oh, right. So, you know... I'm betting that's not the first pregnancy that's happened. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't consider that. But yeah, they don't seem to really have their own private spaces. No. The couple, Rokal and Yukania, thank them for their help. Kelly asks if they know a possible way out, but they say no one's ever tried to escape because they are where they belong. They deeply believe that the stars don't lie and that they have the potential to harm society. Do you think it's a little bit... Oh, man, how do I word this without sounding like a jerk? Are you thinking self-fulfilling prophecy? There's that, but that this couple decided to get pregnant and try to plan it to have a Jiliac baby when they themselves believe that they have violent tendencies and that they don't have the resources to raise a small child and that that child would then be raised in this awful environment. Did they plan to have a Jiliac child or was the pregnancy completely accidental anyway? No, when they were hiding the baby during the inspection, she said, we tried to plan it. Oh. And I just, in my head, I go, were all these adults in this camp, like, were they all raised there? Because when you're born as a Jiliac, you're just automatically bad. They can't hide that on this planet. Yeah, one would think they are. So they've never seen the other side, really. Yeah, so if this is all they know, that would make more sense. But if they were caught and then put into this camp, knowing that they're giving another life Mm. this world just it seemed i can understand wanting to be a parent or like wanting to have that family but i don't know that that's the right environment to do it in yeah i guess it's kind of the idea if you look at like a post-apocalyptic story there are still people getting pregnant and having children and just because those are our instincts and yeah you can fight it to an extent but like it's gonna happen yeah it was just interesting that she did mention i tried we tried to plan it and it didn't quite work out I also thought it was interesting, too, that it's it kind of goes along with the philosophy of if you tell someone something long enough, eventually they're going to start to believe it. So because this is just their culture and this is what they've been told mm-hmm. over and over again, like these these people know inherently that they are not like violent or destructive people, but they've been told so long that they are. They're like, well, I guess I am like, I guess it's buried deep in there. And even if it's not surface level, it could come out at any time. That's messed up. It's like gaslighting on a societal level and just like there's a lot of problematic behavior oh, yeah. on Rigor. Now, I, as I say that, I realize in my actual world that we live in, too, there's a lot, there's of, a lot of problematic. Too, yeah. So it's oh God, it's just awful because yeah, you, you get told something enough, you believe it. The thing that's interesting, though, is this other man stealing the food is, is showing that violent kind of behavior. Sure. So maybe just from him being human and trying to i mean he wasn't doing a good thing but it is self-fulfilling prophecy at that point 
Yeah, they saw some proof of it, and now that makes them believe even more that, oh, if that guy's acting like that, that potential's in me too, and yeah, it's awful. The prefect broadcasts an announcement to the Rigorians that they have entered the first day of the Jiliac, and that all births should be turned over to the state for transport to the camps. Begrudgingly, he agrees to meet with Captain Mercer, who has returned to the planet to negotiate for the release of his crew. Unable to come to an understanding, the prefect asks them to leave, forget about their people, and forget about Rigor too. Tala sure pops off a lot. I like her. <laughs> She's yeah. feisty. I, I, I was curious. She was saying some things, though, where I was like, you know, maybe... Dial it back because you're not being super diplomatic. Yeah. And it's interesting because she's the brand new security officer and she was very vocal about this. So I thought that was interesting. And I'm curious how that will play out more as she settles into the crew a bit. But Ed wasn't stopping her. That's true. Yeah. He just kind of rolled with it. I I picture Jean-Luc Picard in that situation. I don't think he would have allowed that. Oh, no. He would have shut it down right away. Yeah. Granted, they're two very different captains. I shouldn't compare the two. But I just like sometimes I go, I wonder how Jean-Luc would handle this. (laughs) Um. I really loved when Ed said, sometimes a star is just a star. Mm-hmm. But if your religion is based on an, the stars, it's not just a star. But for me, in my life, I really appreciate the sentiment. Sometimes a star is just a star. And obviously things didn't go well in this uh, diplomatic discussion. No, <laughs> coming at a situation with a logical argument like this was probably not the best thing when you're trying to counter somebody's entire belief system. Logic and belief are different ways of looking at things. So you can't you can't argue belief with logic. No. Because it'll just be tossed out. We've learned this. <laughs> We've learned this everywhere. But to go back to the other thing, I thought this was part of my takeaway, but I actually have the note here Mm -hmm. is that like you, I'm confused why he wouldn't just turn them right back over to the union, because what they're doing on Rigor is they're isolating all the Jiliacs in those camps to keep them away from society. So what better solution to keep a couple of Jiliacs away than keeping them far, far away? Like if you're keeping them on Rigor too in the camps, you're just keeping more Jiliacs around when the union gave you a way to get rid of some. I wonder if it's a fear-based decision, though, because I bet it's so horrifying to realize that there's a universe of people flying spaceships around that are Jiliacs. It probably is. And if you is. keep those, you keeping those two there at least takes two out of the universe. That could quite possibly be it, yeah. That's how I headcanoned it, because I also was like, why wouldn't they just give them back? And then I'm like, oh, it's because there's, the reason that I think they're putting these people in camps because they're so afraid of mm-hmm. them. They don't know what to do with them or how to re- rehab them to make them better. They're basically all loose cannons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're, the, their decision is to treat them awful and stick them in a camp for their lives. And I think they probably just want to put them away in a box and pretend they're not even there. That makes sense. A month later, Ed is back in his office. Let me reiterate, a month later, Mm -hmm. Ed is back in his office on another call with Admiral Perry with Cassius looking on. He's asking for more time, but the Admiral needs the Orville back in service. He agrees to send a diplomatic envoy to continue attempting to negotiate Kelly and Bordas' release, but they need to leave orbit in 24 hours. It makes sense. They've been there for a month trying to negotiate, get things figured out. And it's not like they're bailing on them. They're saying, we're going to we're going to send more people, but you can't hang around this planet forever. They still have, what, 24 hours, though, to do anything last minute, which they do. (laughs) Spoilers, (laughs) they do. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Hope you watch the episode. (laughs) 
back in the briefing room. The crew is going over all the information they've gathered about Rigor 2, but haven't been able to find a loophole. As they depart, Tala takes another look and seems to notice something, then gazes out the window at the stars. I smell a plan, Bruin. Oh, yes. The prefect broadcasts again to announce the first day of Wasanda, the time in which the future leaders of the planet are born. Meanwhile, in the camp, Eukania is ready to deliver her baby, but doesn't want a doctor, so Kelly helps deliver her daughter. Oh, did she have an option to have a doctor? I think she did. Okay. But knew the consequences of that. Okay. Because if she gives birth, they're already in the month of Wasanda. If they Mm -hmm. know that this child is being born, that child's gone. How horrifying, though, that she's just giving birth in the barracks, like, with her husband and, like, no, like, no one else is helping? Like, there's got to be some sort of camaraderie within this group, right? One would think so, maybe. maybe. But it also, I guess, ties back to I was questioning whether anyone would notice that there's a pregnant woman here and that they need to look after her. Mm-hmm. One would think the same thing after the fact. If all of a sudden someone comes in and goes, hey, you're not pregnant anymore. What happened to your kid? Yeah. But maybe they think so little of them that they just don't even pay attention. They must not. I mean, honestly, it just seems like they're afterthoughts and that they're just kind of like, oh, it's a job. I got to work and I got to keep all these dumb jilliacs. Like, it's honestly just kind of feels like they're not even important in any stretch or any capacity. Like if she died giving birth, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, I don't think there's any point in which the warden uses anybody's name. He probably doesn't know them. <sighs> it's yeah. disgusting. Sorry. I was, yeah, it's really gross. With 12 hours remaining, Tala approaches the captain with an idea. She asks Isaac to put the constellation Jiliac on the viewer and scan for black holes. It appears that over 3,000 years ago, a star within the constellation collapsed, which would have been a terrifying omen to a civilization of their age at that time. Claire suggests that if the star returned, it would exonerate the Jiliacs. So you can see that they're they're coming up with some sort of plan. They're solving the mystery. Mm Mm-hmm. Formulating a response with not a lot of time left to go. Yeah. Yukania hides her daughter under the floorboards in her camp. Since she was born with Sanda, she'll be taken away if found, as the camp is not the place for her. Rokal suggests that they let her be taken so she can have a better life than the camps will allow, but Yukania insists that she needs her mother. Just then, the warden arrives for inspection. They find nothing, but Rokal tells him to check under the floorboards. They then find the child and quickly take her away. Yukania breaks down in tears, and Kelly has clearly had enough. This is also when the warden makes Kelly say that she's Jilliac trash. That whole thing was awful. That was hard. I didn't expect her to say it. No, I didn't either, but I think in that situation, you don't really have a choice. Yeah, so that's, they take the baby away, and just how the warden acts like, oh, this baby will have a blessed life, and just, it was just such a weird contrast, and she's, The thing that I look at, too, is the mother should realize, like, yes, she's losing her child, but her child will have such a better life because of it. Mm -hmm. I still understand the grief of it, but maybe having a baby wasn't the best choice. But at the same time, they're trying to just live a normal life as best as they can. Yeah, I think maybe under different circumstances, she would have embraced the child being taken away. But they had it in their minds for however many months, if they have the same nine month pregnancy period. That this whole time they were like, yeah, she's going to be with us. Like they had that mindset because, like you said, they planned for it to be a Jiliac child. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, within a matter of days, that changed. It's very interesting to see how 
the mother reacted, even knowing that the life this child would have would be so much better than anything she could ever give her, mm-hmm. even if she had her mom. But all in all, it's just the whole episode and the whole camp is just kind of heartbreaking. It is. Lamar presents his plan of releasing a solar sail into the constellation. It would reflect light and appear to the Rigorians as the missing Giliac star, while a built-in jamming device would prevent their satellites from detecting what it really is. Mercer orders them to go ahead with the plan. Grayson and Bordas attempt to make their escape, assaulting and killing several guards in the process. They blast the doors open, but are stopped by the warden and many more guards. Which, like we said earlier, this has to be one of the most action-filled sequences we've seen up to this point. I have some thoughts on this, though, because, you know, Kelly's like, well, it's not breaking any rules. I can understand that. They are acting within protocol (laughs) if they're behaving exactly as. But, yeah, it justifies. Yeah. Their belief system, unfortunately. It justifies the fact that the Jiliacs are in there and that when, yes, they might get out and leave, but all the Jiliacs, it's like, nope, look at what these two did. Mm -hmm. It just shows that. So we have to put an extra precaution. Like, it just, in my head, I know you want to make like a lat stitch effort to see if you can save yourself or whatever, but it's going to set back any sort of reconciliation with this group of people is not violent. Mm -hmm. And they're not, some might be. But in the Wasanda, I'm sure there's some violent tendencies in those, too. But I do wonder with that self-fulfilling prophecy, if like the Wasanda people are are just like straight and narrow and don't do anything bad. Maybe if they have everything provided for them, maybe those tendencies don't come out as much because they are they're not Mm -hmm. in a situation of desperation like that. So I, I had some morality issues with just the fact that they did this because it's. It may be an act of desperation and being in a concentration camp for a month. Yeah, maybe I would do it too. But I just was thinking about how that would only reinforce stereotypes. Yeah, the larger implications. Mm-hmm. Gordon and John take a shuttle into position. Meanwhile, at the camp, Kelly and Bordis are tied up in front of a firing squad to be punished for their escape attempt. The solar sail is deployed and the new star is noticed by one of the Giliacs right before the execution order is given. In the prefect's office, a call from the Celestial Advisory confirms a new star in the Giliac constellation. When asked what it means, he simply says, change. I feel like it's a little bit of trickery, a little bit of manipulation. Oh, it is. Absolutely. And I know they addressed this in the last part of the episode, Mm -hmm. but I just, I mean, I I get it. But would they have done this if Kelly and Bordas weren't in this situation? That is a question I had, too, because they seemed... Not perfectly okay with the way things were, but I don't think they would have taken these extreme measures if they weren't trying to rescue their own crew. Mm -hmm. So I get it. You have loyalty to specific people who matter to you and you care about. And so I get it. But I do feel like it does mess with the whole religion system on this planet. Mm -hmm. And then later when they find out it's not a real star, what kind of repercussions will that maybe they will have evolved enough that they're like this way of thinking is dated and we don't obviously it's mm-hmm. wrong we've seen Jiliacs act fine but they seem very much like prophecy if they find out that that was a fake star this whole time that maybe the Jiliacs have been fake this whole time and maybe they just start in my head I go to like oh they're gonna start killing them or just like I don't know like it's just something where right you got to do the best you can but I just I have a lot of like open-ended oh god what's gonna happen later it's very similar to the the moral problem that they had in If the Star Should Appear because they kind of made a decision for this society that upends their entire belief structure. Yeah. And did it without necessarily considering the consequences. 
I think a lot of times they're just doing the best that they can, but there is a lot to consider when it's an entire planet Mm -hmm. versus. Yeah. So I don't know. There's just some things that I couldn't headcanon. Yeah. Fully. Yeah. I also, I would say it's, it should seem incredibly coincidental to the Rigorians that a new star appeared within the time that the Orville mm-hmm. had arrived and was orbiting the planet because they must know it's still there because they have yeah. those satellites that monitor positions of stars and it must be able to detect a giant ship in the uh, orbit as well. But also at the same time, like they've said, the stars don't lie. And if they detect it as a star, then they, I guess, by their belief system, would just have to accept that even coincidentally. Yeah. Since their religion is so based on what the sky does, I just feel like they'd have to be like, yep, this is what it is. But that's why I think that when they find out it's not really a star, maybe by then they'll be able to figure out a way to make and manufacture a star and put it in in its place. But still, there's still a lot of lies there. (laughs) With Kelly and Bordas back on the Orville, they celebrate their joint birthday party a few weeks late. Ed tells Kelly that the last of the Rigorian camps has been opened, freeing them. Kelly says that Eukania also provided an update. She's named her daughter Kelly. Tala questions what happens when they find out the truth, and Ed and Kelly say they don't know, but by the time they do, they might not care, which is an interesting way to end it. Mm-hmm. Also, wouldn't Bordis and Kelly have a little bit of PTSD? A little bit, maybe, but I think they've also gone through stuff like this before. Yeah. It just was interesting that they're having a party on the bridge when, like, they've just been through a month of living in a camp, but I get it. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like Maybe they won't care. Or maybe that's an okay way to like end it. Just kind of go, you know, maybe that, like I said, they'll evolve enough to be more mature about viewing people as people versus when they're born. At the point they realize that it's actually just a giant golden fan that they put in the sky. (laughs) I also wonder what they're going to think about how they've treated Juliax all this time Mm -hmm. when they're the same people that were there when the constellation was different. The people haven't changed. The stars have, but... I feel like there'd be a lot of prejudice. Still, just lingering. Still. Or they might be like, these people are royalty now because of this magic star appearing again. And maybe... Maybe. Yeah, so I I feel like... But there's always going to be that. There's always going to be a group of people that still treat them like Jiliacs. At least for a few generations, yeah. Mm -hmm. Tal's question, obviously totally valid. Ed and Kelly's counterpoint was also valid. Mm -hmm. They did what they thought was the right thing to do in the moment, which is something that they've set a precedent for this is what they do yeah they do whatever they feel is the right thing to do which doesn't always align with what star trek does with its stories yeah but that's okay this is just a different crew and they handle things a different way what is your big takeaway from this episode i thought it was very interesting seeing a new society based on astrology science essentially Mm -hmm. almost like if uh, pisces it could have been a pisces camp essentially i didn't love this episode yeah yeah i was not a huge fan of it for some reason i just feel like i had more struggles with some of the morality issues of of some of the things like with the fighting in the camp and then the star Mm -hmm. and i was like they were in kind of a situation where they are backed into a corner so you got to do what you got to do but i just felt like it's first contact Yes, this society is being very aggressive towards two of their officers, but I had too many things that I couldn't resolve in my head. And so I still enjoyed the episode. I just don't think that it it would be near the top Mm. of my list. 
it almost painted itself into a corner that it couldn't get out of because they had limited yeah. time to wrap this out. Like if they did do things diplomatically and Kelly was like, regardless of what happens here, first contact is the priority and we just need to play our roles until everything is resolved. And if it doesn't get resolved, this is where we are now. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the episode? I think it's fine. I don't not like it. And I also wouldn't put it on like the top of my list. There are some things that I do really appreciate about it. So I I appreciate the commentary on astrology because I personally find it to be as much nonsense as this episode presents it to be. Like, I don't think astrology Mm -hmm. means anything. But even though they use astrology for this particular example, it's understandably more about prejudice as a whole and making wild assumptions based on a group of people that just happen to share one thing in common. Like you could easily swap the astrology with race or religion or gender or eye color or height or any other like Mm -hmm. ridiculous standard that you would use to judge a group of people on. Yeah. And I think that's the most interesting thing that this episode does. So an interesting logic issue that I ran into when I was reading up on some things about this is that if you think about it, there is no way that Kelly and Bordas would be considered Jiliacs. Regardless of when they're born, mm-hmm. they were born on different worlds and therefore under different stars. Oh, well, damn. So there is no Jiliac constellation where they're from. But maybe what, since this society is so primitive in a way, they don't know that. They don't understand that the stars that they see are not the stars that other planets or other parts of the universe could even fathom yeah it's an interesting train of thought and then i also could headcanon it away and just be like well the Rigorians are so narrow-minded in their thinking that they might assume that their stars dictate the entire universe yeah regardless of where any others are well you can kind of tell that from them too they believe their their stuff is the right stuff which is understandable Mm -hmm. like Everybody here on Earth does the same kind of thing. It's just this puts a group of people in a camp, essentially. Mm. And so they, I mean, a Jiliac is a Jiliac to them, it seems. Yeah, it doesn't matter where they're from because their planet and what they can see is all that matters to them. It's interesting, too, yeah. that we we answered their call. We don't know if they actually have any sort of space travel, like not even light speed travel or anything like that. We don't know if they've even left the planet. Yeah. They just have the capability of sending out a signal. And the satellites are very much what, in my head, I picture as a NASA satellite system. Like, it's just very relatable to us, but probably very primitive to the Orville. And yeah, like, I'm very curious if they've sent some sort of a man-made shuttle or Mm -hmm. man-made. They're all man-made. I wonder if they've had one with an actual crew that's gone into orbit or anything. I would say no, but that's my assumption, too. Yeah. Yeah. If I was to wager a guess, I think that they've probably never left the the ground that they've walked. It's also interesting to me in this episode that Tala is the one who comes up with the idea that ultimately Mm -hmm. saves Kelly and Bordas. Despite it not seeming like her area of expertise, it seems like someone else would have logically come up with that solution. It does make sense for the show to do that here Mm -hmm. because she needs to, as the new crew member, contribute in a major way during her first episode. Yeah, I think it was a good introduction to Tala. She's got some fire and spice to her that she shows no holds bar, I guess, for making sure that she's heard. And I think that's a really 
strong way to introduce the character. It is interesting that she came up with like, what if we make a star? Right. Like it's like, just oh, that's outside of the security purview. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I, you know, you'd think maybe Isaac would come up with something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, it was just an interesting introduction to her. Which, like, when she was in the office with Ed talking to the first prefect, it was I was like, damn, she is like saying whatever she thinks and so i'm curious how going forward she will assimilate into the crew yeah because this episode is very much hey i'm here and i'm not gonna let you forget that i'm here yeah before we go we have one more thing to do because katie's husband mark is a fan of the show as well and always leaves us with his one sentence review I agree with Bordis. My birthday is my day. Mark's day, you hear me? Jeff Goldblum may have been born on the same day, but it is mine. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at Katie Peters Plays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in In the the future. future.